Entrepreneur on Fire, episode 156. Welcome to EntrepreneurOnFire.com, where remarkable entrepreneurs share their inspiring story. Let their journey illuminate your path to success. And now, your host, John Dumas. Fire Nation. I have received so many requests for a book detailing the step-by-step process of creating your own podcast. Well, the day has arrived. Podcast launch has hit the Amazon store. I share everything in this book and have included 15 incredible video tutorials that go along with the purchase. If you pick up podcast launch and enjoy, I would love a review on Amazon. Go to podcastlaunch.com to snag your copy and get instant access to all 15 video tutorials. That's podcastlaunch.com. Okay, let's get started. I am simply thrilled to introduce my guest today, Julie Samuels. Julie, are you prepared to ignite? Oh, I definitely am, John. (laughs) All right, Julie. Julie is a staff attorney in the Mark Cuban chair to eliminate stupid patents. Before joining Electronic Frontier Foundation, Julie litigated entertainment cases in Chicago. Prior to becoming a lawyer, she spent time as a legislative assistant at the Media Coalition in New York and as an assistant editor at the National Journal Group in D.C. I've given Fire Nation a little overview, Julie, but why don't you take a minute, tell us about you personally, we want to get to know you, and then take another minute and tell us what you have going on right now. Great. So... Like you said, I'm a lawyer at EFF in San Francisco. I work uh, primarily on intellectual property issues, so patents, copyrights, uh, and trademarks. We do a lot of really interesting and great work here um, uh, to to promote policies of open innovation, um, keep the internet open, do all this really exciting tech policy work that's just really exploded in the last couple of years. So it's a really fun time to be doing this. Before that, I worked at a law firm. Uh, I was in Chicago. I spent some time working out of Nashville as well, doing music and patent work. Uh, But I have to tell you, this this part's way more fun, though. I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. No, you nailed it, Julie. We're going to delve way into that later in the interview. Before we even start off with the next topic, which all the listeners know is a success quote, I just want to take a step back real quick and just kind of talk to Fire Nation. So, Julie, I'm really excited to have her on the show. And the basic background of how I got Julie on the show is this. I was driving up, going skiing for the weekend. I was reading my Inc. magazine because I was in the passenger seat. And I read this article about how patent trolls are just draining and killing small businesses and entrepreneurs throughout America. And so they mentioned Mark Cuban as one of the go-to guys that's really leading this charge against these patent trolls. And I reached out to Mark and he emailed me back and said, hey, the person you got to talk to is Julie. She's doing some amazing things. She can really let your listeners know exactly what's going on. So I reached out to Julie. She got right back to me. She's a lawyer, obviously, as we said in the intro. So she's not the typical Fire Nation guest where we have a successful, inspiring entrepreneur, but she is a very successful and inspiring lawyer for what she's doing for entrepreneurs, for small business owners. So I'm just really excited to have her on the show. Again, she's Mark Cuban's right-hand woman for the Eliminate Stupid Patents. She's going to really let us know exactly what's going on and what they're doing to help small businesses and entrepreneurs against these quote-unquote patent trolls, which we're going to delve into further in the interview. But 
As you know, Fire Nation, before we do, we love starting off with a success quote. It's kind of our way of getting the motivational ball rolling. So Julie, take it away. Great. So I thought I would read you guys a quote from the Constitution, which I don't think you probably hear all that often, but no, it really explains. Once. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I, well, I, I think I'm doing my job then. Yes. <laughs> so this is, um, uh, this is from Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution, and in it, the founders gave Congress the power to, quote, promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So I guess I, I could tell you a little bit about what that means. Yeah, why don't you take the legalese out of that and just yeah. <laughs> speak, speak straight to us? <laughs> well, I, I think it's re- this is really important, and, and we have a lot of fights about you know, how the patent system should work, but right. it's, it's, it's not often enough that we go back to these words because those words that I just read are actually the basis for the patent system. Patents are in the Constitution. Um, but the most important part of that quote to me is in the first part where it says, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. So you know, take, take a step back for a second and think about what the founders were saying. They were saying that we're going to give these government-granted monopolies to certain inventors, but we're going to do that to promote the progress of science and useful arts. Right? We're going to do that to, to make innovation stronger in the country, to incentivize people to invent more, to create more, and that's better for our country. It's not to make a whole bunch of patent trolls rich. And why I, I think this works so important is that, you know, right now, and we'll talk more about this, of course, later, but right now, what we've seen, particularly because of the way the patent system has kind of fallen apart, is the opposite is happening. We're not promoting the progress of science and useful arts. We're doing the exact opposite. And we have got to get back to these words. We have to get back to the roost, Julie. So thank you for clarifying that. That's just a great quote for a number of reasons. One of my favorite reasons is because it's just so different from what we usually get. So thank you for sharing that. And we are absolutely going to be delving in. So people are still kind of scratching their heads about what a patent troll is, et cetera. I mean, we're getting into that absolutely, but we're staying with the nice flow of Entrepreneur on Fire because we really want you to connect with Julie and what she's done thus far in her life. We're going to go through her failure and aha moment, and then we're going to get into what she's doing right now. So Julie, At Entrepreneur on Fire, we love to talk about the journey. So share with us a time in your journey when you failed or when you just came up against an obstacle that you really had to dig deep to overcome. And then share with us how you overcame this obstacle, this failure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. So I grew up, you know, in Chicago, went to college, worked for a couple years after college in in D.C. and then New York. And that was great fun. Um, I couldn't actually say enough about taking some time after college and working before you, you know, go on to the next thing. Because after that, I went to law school. And that was also great fun, actually, because I was in Nashville. And um, I quickly have to make a plug for Nashville, which I think is one of the most fun cities ever. Cool. Um, yeah, it was a great time. Um, I love the show Nashville, but I've never been there. Oh, I love the show Nashville, too. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after that, I moved back to Chicago. And I spent about five years working for, you know, pretty big law firms. And it was fine. It was fun. The work was pretty good. The money was pretty good. But it was, it was comfortable and, frankly, a little bit boring. And it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I'd always been really interested in, um, in, in the First Amendment and freedom of speech issues and freedom of innovation issues in technology um, and particularly in how 
technology interacts with those kind of basic tenets of freedom of speech, uh, open innovation, open access, et cetera. And frankly, you know, at a law firm, that's not what you're doing, right? Um, I'm sure most of listen, your listeners, unfortunately, have had to deal with lawyers, probably at law firms, and they know it's a different thing. It's right. a grind. Um, and I just, frankly, felt a little bit unfulfilled. So um, I, I started looking for other jobs that I thought were interesting. And that, that was, first of all, really hard work because it, it's not – when people go through kind of this uh, college, law school, law firm thing, everything is, is pretty – it's hard work but it's a pretty easy path. The path's been uh, done by many people before you. You're not you know, making any waves. So everything is kind of laid out on a red carpet so long as you do well in school. But breaking the mold isn't always, um, isn't always the easiest thing in the world. So I spent a lot of time just kind of trolling the internet, trying to find a new job. Um, but it, it was hard. There weren't that many things out there. The economy was pretty crappy then. And um, Finally, I saw this job at EFF, and frankly, it was my dream job. It was the why I went to law school job uh, to work on these types of issues. I'd known EFF's work since the 90s um, when I was an undergrad, and I couldn't believe that they had this opening. So, you know, really, I, I just applied, and I kind of I got the job, and I took the jump, the leap of faith. I moved across the country. I knew two people in San Francisco before I moved. Um, I took a pretty significant pay cut to do something that I was passionate about, that I cared about. And um, without a doubt, it's been the best decision I ever made in my life. Thank you for sharing this journey with us, Julie, because it is going to resonate incredibly well with so many Fire Nation listeners for a number of reasons. We really have a full spectrum of listeners because some people are still in their comfortable corporate jobs. Some people have recently broken out of those jobs and are just now taking that leap of faith. And some people are remembering back and maybe thinking they want to get back into that comfort zone. But again, hearing stories like this about people following their passions, just continuing to keep in focus what their dream job was, what their vision was when they first started. And for you, that was EFF and what you're doing now. You kept that vision. You didn't let it slip away. It's really inspiring and it's going to resonate so well. And we're going to use that to transition to the next topic, which is the other end of the spectrum. And that's an aha moment. That's a light bulb that went off in your mind at some point during your journey. Now, obviously, you had a light bulb moment of sorts when you saw the EFF job and you went for it and it made sense and it worked. But share with us another time that you've had this light bulb that's just gone off and you said, wow, this is something that's going to resonate with my authentic self. And then share with us how you turned that into success. Well, I think, you know, I had a, a series of those moments, you know, some, some more personal than others, but, but one, I guess, more um, uh, professional would be that there was one project I was working on at the law firm, and it got a tiny bit of press, really small, in a small northwest town, and it was for something that I was totally embarrassed to have done. And, you know, I, I don't, rather, I'm not going to say the client, of course, or the project, but, but essentially, you know, we had kind of shut down... Um, uh, what a company was doing. And we had done that, you know, under the guise of using intellectual property laws. And it was completely legal and it was good for the client and that was all well and good. But at the end of the day, I didn't really feel good about it. I didn't feel like I was helping the world at all. Um, it, you know, definitely didn't help me sleep any better at night. And, and it was hard because the truth is I loved the people I worked with. I worked with great people. I'm still really close friends with many of them. Um, and I really respect a lot of them, and a lot of them are incredibly smart. And, you know, I would never want to disparage any of the work they do. It just wasn't for me. Um, 
And it was, you know, doing that one project that reminded me that, you know, oh my God, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to do that anymore. Nope. You obviously just weren't fulfilling your authentic self. I mean, you were being hired to do a job. You were being professional and you were doing that job. But when it really came down to it, it wasn't what you just felt comfortable with. It wasn't what you were passionate and therefore you weren't going to be bringing your A plus game. I think that's right. Julie, have you had an I've made it moment? Well, you know, at this job, there have frankly been, been a series of those. Um, getting the, the Mark Cuban chair to eliminate stupid patents was surely one. Um, yeah. That was definitely, a, you know, sort of surreal. Um, there have been a couple other things lately that have really made me pinch myself, if you will. Um, recently, Senator Ron Wyden gave a speech on his tech policy agenda for 2013 and cited the work we've been doing in the patent space. Um, and that was a thrill, too. Um, but really, the biggest thrill is just, frankly, getting to wake up every day and do this work because it feels so different than, than it used to feel for me. I feel you know, excited to come to work. I feel excited about what I get to do. And I don't, that's been the most rewarding part of the whole thing. It's really great to hear that you and your field are truly enjoying your journey because that's the thing about these I made it moments. I asked the question because everybody interprets it differently. And some people just say, I'll never have an I've made it moment. But it's great to hear that you are just appreciating these accomplishments and these milestones that you're hitting along the way and just really being happy living in these moments. So I definitely commend you for that as well. This is just going to transition us now into the next topic, Julie, and that's your current business. That's everything that you have going Going on right now. Pull out one or two things that are really exciting you and share those with Fire Nation. Well, you know, I, you know, I think usually when you ask these questions of your guests, you get to hear about really exciting new things that, that those guests are doing. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the work we're doing, but unfortunately, it might sound a little bit more depressing because, you know, we're fighting um, what we think are some pretty bad situations, um, the patent space in particular. So, um, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I can start with the positive, and that's that we're actually seeing some movement. Um, people in Congress are paying attention. Some legislation had been introduced, and, and I think it could go a long way to helping fix the patent troll problem. Um, and most importantly, what we've really been able to do over the last year, I think, is get policymakers and others to talk about the problems with software patents and with patent trolls. And even bringing that, that conversation to, to the forefront, you know, when you're reading about it in Inc. Magazine or listening to it on This American Life, which if you all haven't listened, there's this amazing episode of This American Life called When Patents Attack that really explains the problem better than anything I've heard or read. Um, and you can just Google that. It's When Patents Attack. Uh, being able to bring this conversation to the general public in a way that they can understand has been um, really an important first step in making it better. So that's been a lot of the work we've been doing. I'm really proud of the results. It's been an entire coalition of folks who've been working on that. And I think because of all that hard work, we actually are going to see some reform, some much needed reform and much needed movement to make it better. So let me give you my perspective on this, Julie, and just so all of Fire Nation understands. This is a very beginner's view, a very beginner's angle. This is from the Inc. Magazine article that I've read, and I'm really glad you brought up that podcast, and I'm definitely going to link it up in the show notes so people can quickly skip over to mm -hmm. that, because I'm sure, like you said, it just has some great information. But 
basically what we have going on, and I'm just going to throw out some numbers and a little summary, but you have these patents that were granted back in the 90s, back in the early 2000s, by just really this under-knowing, this, I don't really know what the right word would be for the patent offices, but they just didn't really know what they were giving patents for, exactly the breadth, and the un- they didn't have a great understanding for what they were doing. And so they gave these just really random patents, and some of them were for transferring data through a network. Another one was for using images on a website, And another patent was having a computer that connects to a database. So just these extremely broad patents that as entrepreneurs and as small businesses and just as people surfing the internet, we violate every single day on a lot of levels. And so what you have is different coalitions that have gone around and bought up these patents, different groups of lawyers, and they will actually approach small business owners, and they do it to large businesses as well, but they're really attacking small businesses that average about $11 million in annual revenue, and they're saying, hey, you're infringing upon our patent, pay us $100,000 or pay us a $10,000 licensing fee, whatever that may be, and then you can go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. And if you don't do that, we'll sue you. And so a lot of these small business owners have their hands tied behind their back. They can't afford to pay these outrageous licensing fees and they can't afford to go to court and be sued. So a lot of times they're ending up laying off a lot of people or just stopping to use that technology, which is really just slowing down different things that they would be naturally progressing in. So it's just seems to be this big drain on society. And this number that I'm having right here from the magazine article is $29 billion in legal bills and settlement costs just in 2011. So these patent trolls are going around and targeting these businesses that really have to just throw their hands up and a lot of times just give in or give up and they have no other option. So speak to that a little bit, Julie, because again, that was a beginner's view. That's what I got out of it. But I'd love to hear your angle. Yeah. So I I think, you know, you're pretty much right. Um, It's a little more complicated than than just at the patent office. I, I wouldn't say it's just that the patent office doesn't understand what they're doing, but, you know, what happened traditionally, or I should say what happened historically is that in the, um, late 80s, or I'm sorry, the late nineties, um, software patents, uh, there were a few, there was some, some movement in the courts that opened the doors to software patents. Before then, we didn't really have patents on software in the United States. So they're still fairly new. Um, and, you know, some, some European countries still don't allow patents and some other foreign countries still don't allow patents on software. And that makes sense to a lot of people because software is abstract in nature. Um, and, and so, in theory, you're not allowed to get a patent on an abstract idea. Because if I have an abstract idea and then I get a patent on it, no one else can use that abstract idea. Right. And we don't, that's very bad. That's very bad for society. So, a lot of these problems, um, and, I, and this is a really important distinction, these problems happen when we start talking about software, right? So, the patent system, for instance, works a lot better when you talk about pharmaceuticals. Think about it for a second. To develop a new drug, um, you, companies often put in you know, up to a billion dollars in R&D. They have to take it through three rounds of testing at the FDA. They have to buy all kinds of you know, manufacturing machines, build plants, whatever it may be. But we're talking about serious R&D to produce a new drug, right? So it might make sense to a lot of people that we would want to grant a 20-year monopoly in exchange for that R&D. 
you're going to spend a billion dollars developing a drug, you can, you can corner the market for a little bit. That's essentially what we're saying. And, and you can kind of understand why, as a society, we might choose to do that. But it's so much harder to understand when you start talking about software, which is not to say that software is, is easy to write or it's easy to just sit down and code a bunch of complicated you know, algorithms. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case. But I am saying it does not take the type of investment that, let's say, a drug takes, right? Uh, and there are a bunch of reasons why this system doesn't make sense with software. And I'm going to get to the trolls in a second, but it's really important to understand this piece. Right. Um, you know, technology moves incredibly quickly. The patent office has a crazy backlog. So by the time you get a patent, um, which can take a couple of years on your, you know, invention, quote, It could quote, be obsolete. It likely will be obsolete, right. And, and you know, this gets back now. Uh, uh, there's one other point, actually, about software. It, it operates uniquely as a building block. I write some code, you improve upon it. Um, but the patent system doesn't really allow that to happen because if I write some code and you know, get a patent on my idea of something, then you can't even use it to make it better. Um, and we don't want that in our society. That's not what the Constitution says, right? We want to incentivize further innovation. So because of all of this, and also there's one other thing about software patents that, that's really relevant, and it's that uh, notoriously software patents are really excuse me, are really broad and really vague. They're hard to understand. Lawyers don't get them. Engineers don't get them. They use a bunch of language that just doesn't make sense. And because of all of these things that I just talked about, the patent trolls have been able to, to kind of, you know, take advantage of a system that doesn't make sense. Because what the patent trolls are doing isn't illegal. It's just bad news, really bad news. They're just finding these loopholes in the system. They're taking these patents that are really broad and really vague that last for 20 years, even though the original technology might be obsolete, and they're suing a whole bunch of small companies. But even worse, as you said, they're not suing them, they're threatening lawsuits. And that's because patent litigation is one of the most expensive types of litigation. It can cost well into the millions of dollars to see a case through. So even if a patent troll comes after you and you've got a great case that either you don't infringe the patent or that the patent is maybe invalid and you could get it thrown out, you don't want to spend two, three years in court and spend millions of dollars defending yourself. You want to grow your business. It's easier to pay these people you know, $10,000, $100,000 to go away. It's not ideal, but it's better than the alternative. So the patent trolls know just the right amount of money to ask for, and it's really troubling. It's troubling for so many reasons, all of which you've outlined, because what is basically happening is they've just kind of developed these all-star teams of, again, lawyers who know exactly how to sue and how to present arguments and how to take it to, to the level if they need to, but they just have that, not as a bluff because it's not a bluff, but they have it as kind of a call-our-bluff kind of situation, whereas, hey, if you don't pay this license, we'll sue you, knowing that you know what, when it comes down to look at the numbers, you're probably not going to let them sue you because they could, because they have the team in place and they know how to do it because that's all they do. And you're a crazy, busy business owner who's just trying to go each day to day working and paying your employees and paying for products and being innovative yourself. And you don't have the time, money, or effort to just really bring it down to the ground level. And Inc. does bring up a couple situations where people have. And those people who have gone about it the right way have still paid quite a bit of money out of pocket. 
but they have beat these patent trolls. They have stepped down because they realize that, hey, you know what? Just like most business owners know it's not worth us suing them, in this situation, this person's showing a backbone, so it's not worth right. us actually taking it to the next level. So we're just going to walk away and go after some easier, quote unquote, targets. I think that's really important. And actually, we're starting to see more and more companies fight back. And uh, there was just an article about um, Newegg, who fought back and beat a troll. It's right. a really great story. Um, Twitter also doesn't settle with trolls, which is amazing. Um, but you know, not everyone has the kinds of resources that those companies have, uh, which is it's just the reality. So what we're trying to do, one of the things we're working on is to kind of level the playing field a little bit more, to make it easier for the smaller companies to fight back and make it a little bit harder for the trolls to sue, to make their business model a little bit less attractive. One way that we've, we're hopeful this can happen is with some pending legislation called the SHIELD Act um, that's pending in the House. It essentially um, would create a, what's called a fee-shifting regime, which basically means if you are being sued by a patent troll and you fight till the end and you win, in some cases you can get all of your fees and costs uh, from the court. The, the judge can order the loser to pay your fees and costs. So could say to the patent troll, you brought this really crappy lawsuit. What were you thinking? Pay the other side all of their fees and costs, which, as I said, can easily reach into the millions of dollars. Um, is that going to fix everything? No. Is it going to make it a lot better? Definitely. Uh, so we're hopeful that that will become law. That'd be a great law. And there was something else that I read, and I'm kind of curious about your angle on it. There was something that was said about having to be the original owner of the patent. So these people that are going around and buying up patents from the original patent owners and just using them as this kind of fortress going forward, is that something that's in the works? Um, so... I think a piece of that is in the works, but that's actually really hard because people do assign and license and sell their patents for legitimate reasons all the time. Right. And, and you know, just think the part of the reason this issue can get complicated, think about this for a second. Universities have a bunch of patents and universities have a bunch of patents because they do a bunch of, you know, um, inventing, if you will. Uh, but we don't want our universities also being the businesses that make the products. So, um, in many instances, the universities will license the patents to um, manufacturers, um, and when when that happens, that's not that's not bad news either. Um, so the the loopholes aren't aren't necessarily that you can sell your patent; it's who the patent gets sold to and how you can use them as a tool in litigation, and also um, the fact that the patents are so broad and of oftentimes subpar quality. Because if the patent were more narrow, if, if the patents that the patent troll sits on and uses as a weapon were really narrow and easier to understand, they couldn't use them as effectively, right? They'd really be limited in their scope. And that would also be really helpful. And that's another thing we're working on. So Fire Nation, I brought Julie on the show today just to show you the potential issues that are just circling out there in the universe for entrepreneurs, for small business owners, and that are really serious issues and that there's people like Julie, like the EFF, like Mark Cuban that are working every day to make it a better environment for entrepreneurs, for small business owners, for you, because everybody that's listening to this has the possibility of being bound and chased and extorted by these patent trolls. And that's what a lot of these people that have been targeted by these patent trolls call it, is legal extortion. And that's one of the most frustrating things. 
I think that that's a really good point. And this has become nothing less than a tax on innovation. And one of the things, one of the projects EFF is working on that I would actually, you know, ask the listeners to help us out with is at defendinnovation.org. And what we've done there is proposed seven fixes to the patent system, seven things we think would make the world a little bit better. But we're asking for input. So it's really important that we hear from people up and down the chain, from lawyers who you know I talk to every day and professors and engineers, but also from business people, from entrepreneurs who've had to deal with the patent system on the ground. I want to hear from you guys. I want to know what would make it better, what you think could help, what you think wouldn't help, because what we're going to do once we've collected all that data is put it in a white paper and bring it to Congress and say, don't listen to me because I'm a lawyer. Listen to these people who have to deal with this every day. So if you guys can spare a couple minutes and go to defendinnovation.org and let me know what works and what doesn't, we're doing our best to make it better, but we need your help. So Fire Nation, 150,000 unique downloaders a month strong. You need to be listening to what Julie's saying. I'm going to have that link in the show notes, defendinnovation.org. Together, we can rally, we can be one voice, and we can really make a difference in this. People are out there making a difference. Julie, you have just given us some incredible information throughout this entire interview, and we are all better for it. Give Fire Nation one parting piece of guidance, then tell us how we connect with the EFF, and then we'll say goodbye. I would just say, do what you love. I'm sure you guys hear that all the time, but do what you love and what makes it so that you can sleep well at night because you are going to be better at that job than any other job out there. Yes. Um, and if you want to find us, we are at EFF.org. Uh, and we're always happy to hear from you. Um, and we're always looking for help. This is a movement. We're building a community to work on these issues. So defendinnovation.org, EFF.org. Um, you can find me. Shoot me an email. Happy to chat more about any of this. This has been such a pleasure, Don. Thank you so much. Julie, you have just been so generous with your time, your expertise, and your experience. Fire Nation salutes you, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you. Fire Nation is an incredibly passionate and engaged audience. An Entrepreneur on Fire gets over 150,000 unique downloads every month. If you have a product or service that you know would resonate with Fire Nation, Go to sponsoreofire.com and join past sponsors like Chris Brogan, who saw incredible results. That's sponsoreofire.com. Thank you for joining us at entrepreneuronfire.com, your daily dose of inspiration. Prepare to ignite.